Okay, uh, so welcome uh, to the uh, Welcome Lecture in Neuro Neuroethics. My name is Julian Savalescu. I'm Director of the um, Welcome uh, Centre for the Oxford Centre for Neuroethics funded by the Welcome Trust. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome back uh, one of the principal investigators on that um, project, um, Walter Sinnott Armstrong from Duke University. Um, Walter is the uh, Chauncey Stillman Professor of Practical Ethics uh, at Philosophy and the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. His core faculty in Duke, uh, in the Duke, Uni Duke Institute for Brain Sciences, the Duke Center for Cognitive Science, and the Philosophy Department of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's a partner investigator uh, in our center, and he's also a research scientist with the MIND Research Network in New Mexico. Walter will also be returning next year for a whole term uh, in Michaelmas term as an Oxford Martin School Visiting Fellow. Uh, tonight he'll talk to us about implicit moral attitudes. So thanks so much for having me. Uh, and thanks to the Wellcome Trust for funding all this. And you know, it's always great to come and see Julian and Miriam and all my friends here uh, at Oxford. I'm really looking forward to being back uh, next fall. Uh, this is going to tell you a little bit about what I hope to be doing next fall. Uh, but what I'm going to be doing in my future plans is really somewhat of a change in direction from a lot of my previous work. But of course, like all changes, it starts from what I was doing before. Actually, I think I need to turn this on. Now, can you hear me better? Oh, yeah. Okay, now I don't have to yell anymore. If I start yelling, I'll move the thing down. So tell me if I'm too loud. Okay. Am I? That sounds too loud. Let's try How's that? Is that good? Okay, good. Uh, so, the new project starts from uh, where the things that I was working on before. And I've always been obsessed with psychopaths. So, let me just give you an example of a psychopath, okay? This is a person who uh, was in prison for killing his girlfriend. Uh, and what he did was, she called him fat, bald, and broke. Uh, which, by the way, was true. He was fat, bald, and broke. Uh, but the truth didn't matter. He got angry, waited until she was running about, uh, hit her head against the wall, held her under water, rolled her until she was dead, rolled her up in a blanket, and then threw her off a bridge. Okay. Uh, and then um, he uh, got interviewed when he showed up in prison. He said, you know, the body was recovered, he's back, he's in prison, and he asked if he did anything wrong. What do you think? Did he say he did anything wrong? How many people think the psychopath said he did something wrong? How many people think he said he didn't do anything wrong? And the answer is, he said he did do something wrong. The question is, what was it? He shouldn't have thrown it off the bridge, right? Because they found the body. Uh, so then you say, okay, but did you think it was wrong to kill her? And he said, yes. Uh, now that you mention it, um, yeah, it was bad to actually kill her. Now notice the question here is, is he just responding to the prompt? When you say, but don't you think it was bad to kill her? He goes, yeah, 
Oh yeah, it was bad to kill her. Uh, is he just saying that in order to appease other people? Or does he really believe it? Now one way to test whether he really believes it is to see how he acts. And he actually got subsequently released and did the same thing to his next girlfriend, which is some evidence that he didn't really believe it. But wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to have known that before he was released? Right? To have not taken him at his word that it really was wrong. And to say, this person doesn't see anything wrong with killing his girlfriends. We shouldn't be letting him out. That would have saved a life in this case. And also, there's just a mystery to me. How do you figure out what somebody really believes? Right? They say these things, but you don't really believe them. Right? Well, you have to do these studies. You know, you're, you're, you know, you ask people, well, what if there's this trolley going down the track and you got to push this fat man in front of it and stop the trolley? Is that wrong? And I always wonder if like, subjects go, oh yeah, that was wrong. But do they really believe it or are they just kind of giving an answer on a test? Like, what deeper is going on than merely a verbal report that they think is the right thing to say at the time as opposed to truly endorsing it? So, both from the viewpoint of criminology and from the viewpoint of just doing moral psychology, it would be nice to, um, to figure this out. I'm just going to go through that. Okay. So that's the first thing I do, criminology. The other thing I do is philosophy. And I've noticed, independently, that there's some philosophical issues that turn out to raise very similar problems. Uh, because in the psychopath case, you want to know not just what they say, not just what verbal report they give, but what they really feel. And sometimes philosophers also get stuck on what people say and forget about what they really feel and what they really think. Um, let's start with some old philosophical questions. What do moral judgments mean? The semantics of moral judgments. And there's this big debate between the cognitivists and the non-cognitivists, or the realists and the expressivists, whatever you want to call it. Some people think that moral statements express emotions, and other people think they express beliefs, and that's a big debate, which has gone on for centuries, okay, with no resolution. Now, moral internalism. Do moral beliefs entail motivation? You know, so what if you go, oh yeah, I know it's wrong, but whatever, and you do it anyway. Yeah, it's wrong, but I don't care. And some people say, you don't really believe it's wrong if you don't have this motivation. And other people say, no, most people have that motivation, but that doesn't show you don't believe it if you don't. And so that's another old philosophical issue that's gone on for centuries without resolution. And then there's moral epistemology. Are our moral judgments justified? Well, if they're justified, you need a reason. We express reasons and arguments. Arguments need premises, so you've got to justify your belief in terms of another belief. But is that one justified? Well, then you need another argument with more premises, and so you've got this regress problem. And people have worried for a long time about how you can stop that regress. Okay? I'm going to throw out one more problem here. Moral responsibility. In order to be morally responsible, According to the insanity defense, since the 1500s, you have to know that a certain act is wrong. Okay? But it's not enough to know it in the sense of giving the right answer. You have to really appreciate that the act is wrong. We'll come back to that at the end. 
But for now, I just want to lay out these problems. I'm not supposed to, I'm not going to try to, you know, go into any depth about any of these. The point is there's a whole cluster of philosophical issues that recently, like within the last 10 years, in the case of one of these, within the last 20 years, uh, people have suggested that there's a unified way to solve them. Uh, that's going to solve these traditional puzzles that have not been resolved over the past centuries. So, for example, with regard to semantics, people say, well, you don't really express beliefs when you make a moral judgment. You don't really express emotions. Instead, you express some kind of intermediate state, like an a-leaf or a bizarre. Uh, and so they're trying to come up with something in the middle to get a compromise between these two positions. And if that works, then it could resolve a debate that's gone on for centuries. Second, the internalism of it. Merely saying that it's wrong and endorsing that sentence is not going to entail motivation. But if you really you know, have an, an attitude towards it, an implicit moral attitude towards it, then that is going to entail motivation. I'll come back to these. I'm just trying to lay out the, the, the puzzles now, the issues that, that moral attitudes might be relevant to. Moral epistemology. Maybe what justifies these beliefs are appearances. So when you see the moon and it looks bigger when it's close to the horizon than when it's up high, the, it appears bigger even though you don't believe it's bigger. Okay? And some people think that all of our justification bottoms out in a foundation of these appearances. Well, if they're moral appearances, then maybe our moral justification can bottom out in those moral appearances in the same way. Finally, moral responsibility. It's not enough that you explicitly endorse wrongness. You have to appreciate that your act is wrong. Now, again, I'll come back to all these, but notice the pattern. All I'm going to get on the table now is the pattern. There are these four age-old, century-old philosophical issues, and people have been arguing back and forth about them, and recently people have said, well, it's some kind of pro-attitude. No, it's an implicit moral attitude. Well, it's these moral appearances. No, it's an implicit moral attitude. And they thought that we can solve a lot of philosophical issues by looking at something that's in between a full-fledged belief and a mere emotion or desire. And implicit moral attitudes are getting suggested by various people uh, as ways to locate something in the middle there. So it's not just that the implicit moral attitudes will help us understand psychopaths, it's that it'll help us understand philosophers as well. And psychologists. So John Hyde says this is his model of moral judgment. And notice, you look at the case, and then you have an intuition about the case, and then you reach a judgment about the case, and wait a minute, what's the difference between that and that? Right? I mean, you're making a judgment that it's wrong, and you have an intuition that it's wrong. What's the difference? Well, he doesn't tell you. Or he doesn't tell you very clearly. Or he says different things at different places. And so he's not very consistent about it. So let's turn to one of another moral psychologist who says similar things. 
uh, in some ways, that has a different model, more complex, Josh Green. Listening situation gives you an intuitive appraisal, and then an intuitive emotional response, and then a judgment. Now he's got two things that are both separate from the judgment. What are they talking about? Right? So it's like you've got these philosophers with their four problems, and they're all thinking we need these implicit moral attitudes, but they don't tell you what they are. And then you've got these psychologists, and they've got these models where they draw these boxes and arrows, but you don't know what's in those boxes. Uh, and then you're, you're thinking, you know, well, does the, does the psychopath really feel it? How am I going to figure that out? And my reaction to all of this is simply help. Like, okay, what is going on here? We need to figure out, you know, something that's going to play this role that might help in at least some of these other areas. I'm not going to claim it helps in all of them, but it seems to me that we want to figure out what implicit moral attitudes are. But the problem is that you know, we got to know what they are, we got to know where they come from, we got to know how they function, we got to know what they cause. We want to understand uh, what's being proposed here. Maybe there's nothing, maybe there's something, uh, but we got to figure it out. And how are we going to do that? So, there's a literature in social psychology uh, that I turned to because I thought it might be helpful. And uh, actually, my main collaborators on this project, Keith Payne and Daryl Cameron, work on it at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, so they you know, were tutoring me in it and, uh, and seeing whether it could be helpful about moral things because there's been a lot of work on non-moral implicit attitudes. And maybe, maybe that's going to be useful for these problems uh, that have been uh, bothering me. Okay? So I'm assuming people know the general idea, but let me just you know, remind you of what you're probably all aware of is people who say, Sexism is horrible. Of course I'm against sexism. Discrimination against women is one of the lowest forms of immorality. And then they just kind of regularly hire men anyway. And they say racism is horrible. I just, you know, that's unjust. Of course I'm opposed to racism. And then they hire white people on a regular basis anyway. They explicitly, honestly, and sincerely say, I'm not a racist or a sexist, and they really believe it. But then they end up having other types of behaviors, right? Which suggests there's something going on uh, at some implicit level. Because I'm taking them at their word that they're being sincere, at least some of them, most of them, I think, are being sincere. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that, of course, philosophers are guilty of this. There's been a lot of discussion recently in the profession about uh, women and the way they're treated in the profession. And my assumption is that most philosophers, almost all philosophers, are explicitly opposed to sexism. But then these behaviors occur. And so we want to understand what's making that happen. Okay? Uh, because it seems to be some kind of implicit stereotype. Uh, and some people think of it as just an association. You know, men, math, women, cooking, right? That's the association. Uh, or some explicit belief, you know, uh, or, I'm sorry, some implicit uh, belief, like women are no good at math. Men are no good at cooking, and so on. Uh, but however you interpret it, uh, people seem to think there's something going on in our psyches or in our brains, depending on your field, 
uh, that is going to explain these aberrant behaviors where people are not acting the way they honestly think is the right way to act. But we have to, of course, have tests for these various types of attitudes. Uh, and luckily, you know, otherwise you're just kind of, it's just hot air. You don't know what's going on. You don't know whether they're really there or not. Uh, so social psychologists have done a whole bunch of these. I'm not going to talk about these in any great depth. I'll just mention that um, one of the good things about having so many tests is that you can test them against each other. You've, you've actually got, because there are multiple tests, you've got ways to confirm that you're really onto something. It's the same thing as this other test. And then you can see this person really does have it. Look, there's three different tests that show it. And so if you can get multiple tests uh, converging, I'm going to feel a lot more confident that you've got something real here. So in our lab, we have, you know, Brendan Caldwell's doing the IAT, Joey Hefner's doing the AMP. As I said, uh, Keith and Daryl are doing the PDP. Uh, the Stroop test is Tobias Egner. Eye tracking's been done by Nina and Felipe. And we have Joe and uh, Jana running brain scanning. So part of what my lab's been doing, and will continue to do over the next year, is to look into these various different methods. But I'm only going to tell you about one of them, because I'm covering way too much, and I know it. So we're going to focus in on the PDP, OK? Because that's the best, and that's the one that we have found works best. It starts with what's known as a sequential priming task. And what you do there is you pre-classify in a pilot study words of various sorts. Words for acts that are wrong, like murder, rape, death, assault, abuse, betrayal. And words for acts that are not wrong, writing, painting, baking, tennis, golf. Now I know everybody, when they hear this talk, they always say golf doesn't belong in that picture. <laughs> <laughs> but as a golfer, I must object. And our pilot study showed that most people agree with this. I'm leaving golf in the list. Okay. We can take golf out of the statistical analyses and it'll, the results will still hold. And then what you do in the task is they fixate on a cross and then you show them a prime word for 100 milliseconds. That's not subliminal. That's enough time that they can see that word. They can pick up on it. Then a blank screen for a little while. And then the target word varying the deadline 400 to 800 milliseconds. So notice one advantage of this, you can do a whole trial right here in, well, if you're using the 400, less than a second. So you can get a lot of data in five minutes. Uh, so it's actually a very quick test uh, to run. It drives people crazy, uh, but they can put up with it for five minutes. Okay. Uh, and the, no, the instructions are simply, ignore that prime. Don't pay any attention to that. The only question we want you to answer is, is the target word wrong? That is, is it the name of a type of act that is wrong. It's not the word that's wrong, right? Uh, but we're going to call them wrong words just for simplicity. Okay, so the task, which you, assuming that people are intending to follow the instructions, their intention is to ignore the prime and answer whether the target word is wrong. And of course, you scramble them up, and so there are four different conditions. Uh, congruent conditions where both the target and the prime are wrong, or both the target and the prime are neutral. And incongruent conditions were both where the prime is wrong and the target's neutral, or the, um, or the prime is neutral and the target's wrong. Now, I won't go into the math, uh, but if somebody's interested, I can show you the calculations. Uh, by mixing these up and getting enough trials, 
you look and doing it fast enough so that there's a high error rate, you can look at the patterns of errors and determine how much implicit bias there is. Because if there's implicit bias for the wrong word, then in the wrong neutral trial, they're going to be inclined to answer wrong when they're asked, is that word wrong? They're going to give what they themselves take to be an incorrect answer. And there's all kinds of independent evidence that they think it's wrong, that they, they go, ah, right? And I'll show you a, an error-related negativity result later, uh, which also confirms that they recognize it as an error, but they're moving so fast that they still make it. So you look at the patterns of errors, and if there are people who make a lot of errors in that trial, for example, uh, have a stronger implicit bias against the words that were there before uh, than the ones who don't make those errors. And you can also measure a control factor. So the control factor is just your ability to follow the instructions on the assumption that people in the experimental situation intend to follow the instructions and are trying to follow the instructions. And you can, of course, confirm that by paying them you know, more for correct answers and so on. Uh, then uh, you have a, a C factor, I'll call it, or control factor, which is just your ability to give the answer that you think is right about the target word. And the A factor is the bias that the prime triggers in you and creates errors when you're trying to classify the target word. Okay? Again, I can go into the math if you want, but that's the intuitive idea. Now, I think, you know, some people are, are probably out there, if you've read like Kahneman and all the dual process theories, you're thinking, this is just dual process theory. So I want to say, no, it's not. Because one, one thing that it's not is it doesn't say anything about whether it's conscious or unconscious. Notice the prime is superliminal, right? So we don't know whether it's conscious or unconscious. We're not making any claims about that. Not saying whether it's emotion or reasoning. Not saying whether it's primitive or modern. Not saying whether it's tied to any particular content. Even whether it's fast or slow. We'll see that one of our experiments um, shows that actually the control factor is operating at a slower speed. But so far, that's not built into the PDP itself. So even if you're very skeptical about system one and system two, you shouldn't be skeptical about this because we're not bringing all that baggage in with us. right? We're focusing specifically on the control factor is your ability to give the answer you intend to give, that you yourself view as a correct answer, uh, versus the automatic bias. Uh, okay. Great idea. Does it work? Got to check it out, right? So we did two experiments here, 65, 144 different subjects. Looked at those conditions that I just described. Now, notice, let me just explain what the predictions are here. If uh, the person has an automatic bias, then they should be affected by whether the prime was a wrong prime or a neutral prime. Right? Because they've got an automatic bias. If the word is murder and they have a bias against murder, that should incline them to make mistakes when the second word is neutral. Right? But it's not going to be affected by the control factor. Your ability to give the right answer will not be affected by what type of prime it was. And conversely, uh, the automatic factor will not be affected by response deadline, but control will. 
you're going to be less able to give the answer you intend to give when there's a lot more time pressure. Because that's what, you know, you're, you're going to have less control when you're under more <coughs> time pressure. But that's not going to affect your automatic bias because what you think about murder is not going to be affected by how fast the response deadline is in the experiment. And one reason I'm so excited about this work is that that's exactly what you find. If you look at the, say, let's take, just take the, the rows versus the column, uh, the, the top row versus the bottom row. And you can see that there's a big difference in the automatic factor, 0.69 versus 0.48, and similarly, but no difference in the control factor, 0.25, 0.37. So that shows that the automatic factor is getting affected by the prime time, whether it's wrong or neutral, just like you would expect if it's picking up on an implicit attitude. Now let's look at the columns, okay? 400, 500, 800, we actually didn't see much difference between these two, so let's just compare 500 and 800. You go from automatic factor, 6667, 5051, they're, you know, statistically the same. But control goes from 0.38 to 0 0.75, 0 0.40 to 0.77. If, if somebody wants me to explain what those numbers mean, I'd be happy to, you know, go through it. But the point is, We've got a beautiful double dissociation, right? We've got the deadline affecting control, but not automaticity, and the prime affecting automaticity, but not control. So we've got some confirmation that these are independent um, factors. But is it all emotion? Maybe it's just murder gets your emotions up. It has nothing specifically to do with morality. It's just um, it's just intensity of affect. Okay? So we check it with negative emotion words, cancer, disaster, trauma, distress, pain, rabies, things like that, which are geared to have the same affect as the moral words, and yet uh, they're not moral, right? There's nothing immoral about rabies or pain or trauma, right? Uh, nothing in itself, I and mean, it might be the result of immoral activity. Uh, and look what happens, you actually get from the wrong prime a bigger, no control, no effective control, which, which replicates the first experiment, but you get a bigger effect of the morally wrong words than the similarly high and affect words that are not moral. Which means that this automatic factor is picking up on something specifically moral, not just negative emotion. Okay? And we wanted to introduce in the second experiment as well, in addition to showing that it's really about morality, we wanted to introduce psychopathy measures. So we use the Levinson self-report psychopathy scale, which is not the best, but the real test takes many hours, and so uh, it's a start. Uh, we're going to try to do the other one later. Uh, and what we found was that psychopathy scores were marginally OA associated with a reduced automatic factor, which means they don't have the same implicit attitude against murder. The higher the psychopathy score, the lower implicit attitude against murder or rape or theft or the other items on the list. Now, not surprising, but a nice confirmation that it actually works and something that might be useful in understanding psychopaths. And it's interesting that they did not show 
a lower A on the negative prime orders, on the emotion order. So again, it's not just emotion. Moral judgment is operating independently of emotion uh, in this test. Okay, fine. Great, okay. So it's not just emotion, it's moral judgment, but is it real? I mean, so far it's just psychology. Who trusts psychology? We need brains, right? And now we got to do brains. Okay, so I'm going to just talk through this. You don't need the details. Again, I'd be happy to share them with people who are more interested. But in previous work had shown a certain uh, error-related negativity, probably due to the anterior cingulate, uh, in a race task, you know, one of the other implicit attitudes. So we wanted to see whether our moral task would correlate uh, in the same way, use a similar setup, and ask the uh, Levinson self-report. You don't need any of the details off this slide. The slide is way too busy, but I didn't have time to, you know, cut it down. All you need to know is the red line's not as high as the green line. That's what you need. Because uh, basically, the red line is the people who are high in psychopathy. The green line is the people who are low in psychopathy. And gray is medium psychopathy. And the red line is significantly below both of them. And what this means, because of the anterior signal, because of the kind of thing it is, it's an error-related negativity. That means when you, you're going really fast like this, like this, and you go, oh, no. Right? I just said that murder is not wrong. Or I just said that tennis is wrong, right? Uh, and I made a mistake. And you notice you made an error, and immediately, 100 milliseconds, get this big effect, not in psychopaths. They just go, whatever, right? And so they're not having the same reaction. And now we've got a neural signal tied to one of these implicit uh, measures, okay? But if it's really real, it's not just in the brain, it's in the rest of the body, it's in our behavior, right? So, let me, okay. It's in our behavior. So, uh, what we did is we tested controversial cases, and it, showed, it turns out that in controversial cases, people's implicit attitudes follow uh, what they really think about the issue, uh, as well as in these clear cases like murder and rape, where 99% are saying, of course it's wrong. Okay, uh, and we could actually use it to predict how much people were going to donate to charities uh, of different sorts that took like Planned Parenthood. Uh, we could use the implicit moral attitude towards abortion to predict how much money they would contribute to Planned Parenthood, for example. So it's actually predicting behavior. But my favorite uh, use of this to predict actual behavior, largely because. I love the experiments that I came up with the idea. So I said, look, we're having this referendum on gay marriage in North Carolina, and some people are like really opposed to gay marriage, and other people are not opposed to gay marriage. Wouldn't it be nice if we could kind of go out and test people? So we sent an army of research assistants out to different polling places that we knew were traditionally more conservative or more liberal, uh, and just kind of gave them a $5 bill if they would do our five-minute test. Uh, and answer a few questions uh, as they were leaving the, uh, the polling place, okay? Uh, and uh, so we got 65. Uh, I'm surprised five bucks wasn't enough, but, um, and, you know, it only took five minutes. But still, I think they were kind of skeptical of these college students, like, showing up at their polling places. But we ended up with 
26 Democrats, 20 Republicans, 17 Independents. So a nice distribution of political orientation. Uh, and what we did is we simply used gay marriage and same-sex marriage as the primes in place of, as the wrong words, in place of uh, murder and rape and theft in and, and, and the previous test. Um, and we had, we had used this before in a, in a pilot, but this is actually using it in the field. And we asked, you know, did you vote for or against Amendment 1, which was an anti-gay marriage amendment, which basically, the state of North Carolina shall not recognize any you know, civil union or marriage except between one man and one woman. Right, and that was the amendment. So if you voted for the amendment, uh, you're against gay marriage. Okay? Uh, and we asked them also, what do they think explicitly about gay marriage? And again, there's too much on this slide for me to go through in great detail. Uh, I kind of use slides sometimes for people who want the technical details. You can look at the slide. But people that don't want the technical details, just listen to me. Um, basically, what happened was um, when people voted against the amendment, they didn't have an implicit attitude against gay marriage. And when they voted for the amendment, they, they did have this implicit attitude factor uh, stronger after gay marriage and after the nuclear problem. So they had an implicit bias against gay marriage. And you can actually predict how they voted on the amendment using this implicit attitude measure. Uh, only point one, but that's one of the problems with only having 65 subjects. Getting point one with 65 subjects in the field uh, is actually, um, I was surprised that we got anything. Uh, so, where do we stand? We've got now this measure, not of what somebody's going to explicitly say if you ask them a question, but what they implicitly have is a standing attitude that they're going to get biased by uh, in certain phases, uh, just like a measure of implicit racism or implicit sexism. But this is an implicit bias that we want, namely an implicit bias against murder, against rape, against theft, against promise-breaking lying, and so on. Okay, so uh, we've got a measure of it. We've got a neural basis for it. We've got we've shown that it predicts behavior. Of course, let me add immediately that all of these are initial results. I would love to see other people confirm them and test them in other populations and so on and so on. It's the beginning of a research pro uh, program that, that Duke has given us a grant to work on. Um, but let's assume that it's right for now and talk about what are we going to do with it, okay? If you could get a reliable measure of these implicit attitudes, what could you do? In particular, what could you do within the legal system, okay? Well, one thing you could do is you could try to use these for prediction. You know, for example, we're going to try to bring these uh, tests. We've, we've got contacts in um, the uh, Cook County uh, Jail uh, in Chicago and in uh, a prison in Wisconsin and another prison in New Mexico where we can bring these in. Um, and we can say, okay, does the implicit attitude predict how likely this person is to recidivate. We published other work where we followed people up for from two to four years and showed that certain brain signals predicted recidivism. Well, this would be a nice confirmation of that because no test is perfect. So if you've got two predictors, then jointly the hope would be it would add more accuracy, fewer mistakes, and so on. So you might use it that way within the legal system for sentencing and parole. For treatment, 
Okay? There's a treatment program for psychopaths in Wisconsin, but it reduces the violence by 50%. What about the other 50%? Now you're letting people out of the streets that have not really been cured yet by this treatment. But it'd be nice to know when the treatment has worked and when it hadn't worked. This test might be used in that way. Once you get it working properly, of course. Responsibility. Well, actually, I'm going to talk about that later. So I'll come back to responsibility. I'll leave that for now. Uh, effects of exposure. One thing that worries me about prison life is that it often turns people into recidivists especially when, when these prisoners are put at high levels of high security levels. And the question is, how does that work? Because if we can figure out how that works, we might be able to do something about it and stop it from happening, which would be better for the prisoners as well as for people who are potential victims on the outside. Uh, and one effect of exposure might be you just lose your implicit attitudes against something. The way someone can lose their implicit, their implicit, implicit racist attitudes by dating a person from the opposite race. Well, if you hang around with prisoners enough, you might lose your implicit attitude against immoral behavior. And that worries us, and so we want to see if we can find something. In addition, domestic violence. Kids who grew up in families and see parents yelling and arguing and even hitting each other. Uh, well, how does that affect your implicit attitudes towards domestic violence? They're probably still going to say it's wrong, but do they really feel it? Uh, and if not, what are we going to do about it to reinstall those attitudes? And bias, obviously, in jurors, judges, prosecutors, and so on. Uh, this can affect how fair the trial is for people who are accused of immoral things. So I'm going to add just one more time the qualification. Of course, the test is not you know, confirmed yet. There's a lot of work to be done. Please do it for me because. We're doing it as fast as we can, but that's not fast enough. Uh, and it, but there are a lot of uh, applications if we, can, if we can get it to work. And I want to end just by saying the lessons in philosophy, okay? Because we started with those philosophical issues. Uh, tests of implicit moral attitudes um, could be used in moral semantics. So, for example, if we've now got this implicit attitude, towards the moral issue, and we also have the controlled judgment, which is it that you express when you express a moral judgment and you say abortion is wrong? If you think about it, and you think about the PDP test and what it's measuring, it's pretty clear that what you intend to express is your controlled attitude, not your implicit attitude. Because the whole point of the controlled attitude is if you're following the instructions, this is what you intend to use and what you'll take to be a correct answer to the question. Right? So you're expressing your controlled attitude. And yet, now people say, wait a minute, you know, what you're expressing is emotions. Wait a minute, now you're not expressing emotions if the emotions are somehow associated with the implicit attitude. And the explicit attitude is this controlled expression of your opinion. And so now we have a way of looking at that C factor, that control factor, and figuring out, and this is, this I'll just add for model, because nobody else will understand this, you know, whether it's model-free or model-based, uh, to see whether it's the kind of thing 
uh, that would be counted as a cognitive versus a, a non-cognitive factor, uh, which might help, if not solve, at least make more precise the issue that's at debate uh, in that old philosophical issue. Similarly, for internalism, uh, tests of implicit moral attitudes uh, enable us to study uh, this relation to motivation. So we want to know whether the implicit moral attitudes are inherently motivational. Well, it sure looks like we're using them to predict behavior, charitable giving, voting in the election, and so on. That looks like a sign that people are motivated to vote that way or to give to those charities. And so it looks like the implicit attitudes are motivational. And in fact, if they weren't motivational, one would even wonder whether the tests were picking up on the right thing, which makes it look like there might be a conceptual relation there between the implicit attitudes and motivation, even if there's no relation whatsoever between the explicit beliefs uh, and motivation. Uriah Kriegel has a nice uh, article uh, suggesting such a thing. And I think our empirical results might su support that view. Moral epistemology, okay? Uh, an interesting thing, I I've argued for a long time that one of the problems with the reliability of moral judgments is that they're subject to framing effects. If you ask people scenario A, then B, then C, they give you different answers than if you ask them C, then B, then A. That can't be right. I mean, that just shows that you're unreliable. And to the extent that you have such framing effects, there's unreliability. And it's a very interesting fact about the implicit moral attitudes. They do not show framing effects to nearly the extent that the explicit answers do. If that's right, then these implicit attitudes might actually be more reliable and thus might actually help in this quest for, for justification of moral beliefs. There are also questions there about their, whether they're model-free or model-based, but I'll leave that for now, because that gets complicated. Uh, moral responsibility, I said I'd come back to it. And sure enough, the test of implicit moral attitudes uh, help us in some marginal cases, uh, such as psychopaths and scrupulosity. I mentioned that just because my talk tomorrow is going to be about scrupulosity, and it does, there's some connection between that and this talk. Uh, but psychopaths, take psychopaths in particular. How many people know about the new insanity defense in Scotland that was passed four years ago? See? It's, they always say that law is a public thing and people have access to it. But nobody knows what the law is. Okay, so Scotland. Scotland, in 2010, passed the Criminal Justice and Licensing Act uh, and used wording that was very similar to the model penal code in the U.S. that was very popular during the 70s and waned in popularity after the attempt on Reagan's life by John Hinckley. But they say it's not criminally responsible for conduct constituting an offense if the person was at the time of the conduct unable by reason of mental disorder to appreciate the nature or wrongfulness of the conduct. And they say the concept, that, this is the comments, the official comments on the law, the concept of appreciation is wider than that of mere knowledge. <laughs> How much wider? What exactly do you mean by appreciation, Mr lawyer or judge who wrote this or legislator. No, it's wider, but how do we tell whether somebody really appreciates or not? One could say, well, the psychopaths, are they able to answer moral questions? Absolutely. I'll show you the data. They can give you the right answers to questions. Questions whether they really appreciate the wrongfulness. And if they don't, then it looks like this law is going to suggest they're eligible, they're not criminally responsible. 
Okay? So, what's the appreciation? Well, if they lack the implicit attitude, that seems to me a nice, concrete um, interpretation of what it means to appreciate the wrongful, to lack appreciation of the wrongfulness. And then you could use these scientific tests of implicit attitudes uh, to determine which psychopaths or which defendants are or, and are not eligible for this reduction uh, in criminal responsibility. Okay, um, and philosophically, I think that makes sense. It's not just that the legal system since the 1500s has always held something like this. If you don't really know what's wrong, if you don't really appreciate the wrongfulness of it, then um, then people are not responsible. There are lots of different jurisdictions, you know, since as I said, the 1500s that have held that. But one reason people reject the word appreciate is they don't know what it means. They say, we can't have such a vague test in the law. Well, we can give a nice concrete meaning to it now. Uh, and we can use the test in that way. Uh, and so philosophically, it looks like this is a common sense uh, principle shared by a lot of people, even if not everybody, as evidenced by the fact that it has been adopted in a large number of jurisdictions, even if not everyone. Uh, and so um, it looks like something that philosophers ought to take seriously. So. So we've come full circle, we're back to psychopaths now and their responsibility and whether they really believe the judgments. But the idea is, okay, I wondered whether to, how to interpret whether the psychopath really believes it. The hope is that these tests of implicit attitudes give us away, raises these philosophical questions, um, and people have proposed answers recently that all refer to implicit moral attitudes, but nobody knew what that meant. And now the Payne, Cameron test uh, the PDP uh, seems to give us a way to uh, do that, uh, and it's got practical uses as well. Uh, so I'm obviously excited about this work, uh, but I want to end by qualifying yet again. You know, this is just starting. It all has to be confirmed before we can draw big implications, uh, and I look forward to uh, talking to you about it uh, during the discussion period. Thanks.